Uh, what a pleasure it is to be back here at RHC. For those of you that may not know, uh, Trish and I um, used to attend, actually were involved in the planning of this church. How long ago has it been now, Phil? Five years. Five years ago. So, um, and what? And five, yeah, it feels like that, absolutely. And so um, it, it really is a pleasure to, to come back to RHC. Uh, we, we uh, about two years ago, uh, transitioned down to Los Angeles, and I've been attending seminary uh, at the Master's Seminary down there, and um, it's been a real privilege. Uh, we're really enjoying our time. Just to update you, those of you that may not see the, uh, the website that I update every, you know, nine months or so, um, uh, we have, we have just seen God's grace and faithfulness in our lives over and over and over again. Um, he has been so good to us, and, uh, and yet it, it's always nice to come home, um, even when it's 100 degrees and, and you're going to be working in it. So uh, when Phil asked me to preach, uh, I was honored for a couple reasons. One, it's Father's Day, and uh, that's always fun because you have kind of a built-in topic that uh, it's a lot easier to, to come up with a, a text. But there's also another reason, and I don't usually like to embarrass my children, but uh, this one is, is significant. Um, Twelve years ago today, um, I became a father uh, for this first time, and so my son Aiden is enjoying his 12th birthday. So I was going to sing happy birthday to you, Aiden, in Greek, but I, I don't know how to do that. So, so we'll just say happy birthday. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. And as I was, on a serious note, uh, contemplating and praying about what to preach about, uh, I was going to preach from Romans 8, uh, the passage we just, uh, Paul just read for us this morning. Um, but God directed my attention to this passage. We were actually um, in one of my classes in the spring uh, translating this text and uh, doing some, some study on it. And uh, it just, it's one of those passages, the more I read it and the more I continue to read it, the more I'm just overwhelmed and astonished uh, by what's found there. So 1 John chapter 3, uh, we're just going to read three verses, verses 1 through 3, and study those together. And for those of you, I am in the NASB, so if you have the ESV, it's going to be a little bit off, but very similar. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning so thankful for the opportunity to open Your Word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in our lives. We thank you for giving us the scriptures, that special revelation by which we can know you. Father, it's my desire this morning as we open the scriptures that you would attend your word. Lord, give me the words to speak. May the Spirit, Lord, speak through me in such a way that our hearts might be changed, that we might hear the great and sweet truth found in these pages of your word. And Lord, that it might transform our lives, that we might be faithful servants to you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as preparing this uh, sermon, I began to do a little research on Father's Day, because I don't know if any of you uh, even know the history of Father's Day. Um, Father's Day actually originates all the way back in 1910, uh, a lady in Washington State. Uh, I didn't think anything good came from Washington State. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Uh, 
My brother's here from Seattle, so I had to throw that in. Um, but back in Washington State, uh, and, and it was a, a local holiday for quite a while. Uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, even acknowledged it for a time. But it wasn't all the way until 1972 that, we, that it was made a national holiday. Now, Mother's Day was formed in 1909, so obviously mothers are more important. Um, but it's interesting, as I begin to think and pray about this text and think about fatherhood, uh, I was just driven to, uh, to research a little bit more and uh, went, of course, to, to Google and uh, found some statistics about fatherhood that I, f- I found kind of startling. Um, I, as I actually began, it kind of soured my stomach to consider what fatherhood, uh, what the state of fatherhood is in our culture, uh, what it's like in our nation. So I'm just going to throw a few stats out to, to give us a little bit of a, a background. Um, in 2014, there was a study that found that uh, there are more than 20 million children who live in a home in the United States without the physical presence of a father. They're raised only by their mothers. Um, students, I was a teacher for a long time, uh, taught junior hires. Students from grades 1 to 12, 39% of kids live in homes absent a dad, their biological dad. Um, now, you have to think about this compared to what we came from. In, in the post-war generation, you know, the great generation of 45 to, to 60, um, that number was uh, 88% of children grew up with both parents and grew up with parents married and in the home. As recent as 2012, that number has dropped to 68%. And so you see even statistically that fatherhood's uh, on the decline. Um, How does that actually affect us? Well, we found that research tell us that 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. Um, we know that uh, you can imagine without a father in the home, the increase in truancy and the increases in behavior problems, academic effects. Um, there's a lot that goes along uh, with that. Those in father-absent homes are four times more likely to be in, a, in poverty. Uh, they're much greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse, and they have a much greater likelihood of, of behavioral issues and suicide. Now, I don't want to bring us all the way down, but I share that to start because fatherhood really matters. And, um, you know, as we, we, we spend this, this third Sunday in June every year celebrating fathers, and yet I don't know how often we take time to actually consider what it means to be a father, what it means to be a father uh, for each of us here in this room that are dads. If you're a dad, raise your hand real quick. I just want to honor you. There's, there's a few of us in this room, right? And it is, a, it is an honor to be a father but it's also a great responsibility. And as the stats show, we do live in a society in which fatherhood is, is declining. You know, um, and it's not just evident in, in the homes of unbelievers. Uh, we see the same decline in, in professing believers as well. Um, and you may have a dad in the home, but that doesn't mean that he's fulfilling his responsibilities. Maybe he's there, but he's derelict in his, his duty. And as you think about our culture, with all of the rapidly changing views that we have, the changing views on marriage, the changing views on what it is to be a family, the changing views even on what it means to to be male or female, with all those changes, it seems like the future is uncertain. You know, you would expect that this this decline is just going to continue. And um, what do we do about it? How do we fix the issue? Is there something that uh, the scriptures speak to? Uh, should we start activist organizations? Uh, we need some more of those, I'm sure, right? Uh, get, get political, uh, change the stance of our politicians, and that'll change our government, and that'll change fatherhood. Um, if you know me at all, you obviously know that that's not what I would recommend. Um, the only lasting change that's going to happen in our culture is if we get back to what fatherhood's supposed to be about, 
If we look at the example that we find in scriptures to see what God says on the issue, and that's what we're going to do today. That's, that's the plan today. As we look in the Bible, we're going to find the supreme example of what a father should be. Uh, I don't want to talk today uh, to you dads about being a better father. Um, this sermon is not uh, aimed at fathers. In fact, this sermon is aimed at every single one of us in this room uh, that are believers in particular, but even unbelievers that may be in this room, to point you to the greatest father, the heavenly father that we can have a, a perfect relationship with as we cast ourselves on him. So rather than spending our time looking at the counterfeit copies, looking at uh, the examples that we see, let's give our attention to God's word and let's look at the greatest father. I always like to set objectives. Remember, I have a teaching background, so I have objectives for you by the end of this message. Three things. I want, first of all, that all of us might come uh, to greater devotion and love for our Heavenly Father. As we see Him in the pages of Scripture, as we see how the Bible lays out so clearly uh, the message of God our Father, that we would grow in devotion and love. Two, that we might see in a fresh new way this rich relationship uh, that we have and the responsibility that it gives us as believers uh, to, to walk in obedience and faithfulness to our Father. And thirdly, anytime we open up the Bible, my desire is if there is any in the room that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they may be brought to saving faith. And that's my desires today. So let's dig in our text together. Um, I hope you're ready. We're going to be moving quite a bit through the Bible. Um, let's look at our first question. What does it mean that God is our Father? Uh, look back at our text, verse 1. See how great a love the Father and we're just going to stop right there. I want to just narrow down our focus into that one word right there in, in verse 1. The Father. The Father. See how great a love. The Father. Um, in the Greek, that word for Father is, is pater. If you know some of the, the words in English that kind of come from that, paternity or paternal, uh, those are speaking of fatherly things. But what's that word actually mean? What's it entail? What's it mean that, that one is a father? Um, of course, we have, you know, some, some natural background that we think of fathers. When I say father, we all think probably first of our immediate biological, physical father, right? That's one way or one thing, one meaning that can be found uh, for father in, in the scriptures. When it's found in the plural, it can actually speak for both parents. Some of you may be familiar with a couple passages that come to mind. Ephesians 6, uh, when it says, fathers, uh, do not provoke your children to anger. That's actually speaking to moms and dads, not just dads. So moms, don't use that against your husbands. Um, in Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not exasperate your children. That is actually speaking to parents. Okay? That's, so sometimes father, used in the plural form, can actually speak to more than one parent, more than just the male biological parent. Sometimes it can refer to someone that you're descended from, a forefather. Right? You may talk about your grandpa, your great-grandpa, or an ancient, ancient ancestor of yours. That can be a form of father and how it's used as well. Sometimes we use this word uh, talking about those that provide a moral or an intellectual upbringing. Right? Someone's a father to you. That may, may be a good or a bad thing. They influence you. Um, some of you may have had someone in your life that, that acted as a, we even use the term what? Father figure. Right? Someone that kind of took that role. Um, this can be negative. Of course, in Scripture we know that who is sometimes referred to as the father of lies? The devil, right? We know in John 8, 44, Jesus, in fact, says that you're of your father, the devil. It's not always a good thing. It can also just be a simple title of respect. Just father, something we use as a title of respect for someone. 
But in this case, what is he talking about? What is John speaking to? John is speaking to God as the supreme deity, God the Father. That's the Father to whom he speaks. It's the one that's responsible for the origin and the care of everything that exists. That's the Father. But why does John use, why does John use uh, this, this term Father for God? I think this is something we have to kind of step back and think about the biblical uh, record. What's the Bible? Does it speak about God the Father just here? Is this the only place that you guys can think of in Scripture where we hear of God the Father? Well, of course not, right? The concept of God the Father is throughout the Bible. In fact, more than 220 times God is referred to as the Father in the Old and New Testaments. Jesus himself refers to God as Father 165 times in the Gospels. And this is his favorite term. This is the term that he constantly refers to when he talks of the first member of the Trinity. Um, obviously, the, the reason Scripture then uses this metaphor, okay, this, this analogy that speaks of God as Father, is because Jesus uses it. And why does Jesus use it? Well, because it's the best metaphor there is to express the intimate relationship that existed between God the Son and God the Father. Um, for us, then, the reason why we come, and John can use this term uh, as, as, as we speak as believers to the Father, is because his son had that same exact relationship with the father. John chapter 10, 37 through 38, I love this, that just expresses the intimacy of this term. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Throughout scripture, Jesus continually says, my father, my father, my father. You think of the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane the, the, the intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father as he prays to him in that moment of urgency. You think of his time even on the cross, right? He prays and cries out to his Father. And so this intimate relationship is, is vital, and it's an important metaphor that we understand. But we need to recognize it wasn't just Jesus that used it. Jesus didn't just say, my Father, and that was it. He also taught his disciples and all of us who would follow to address God in the same way. Matthew chapter 6, you guys probably are very familiar, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he, his disciples ask, how, how then should we pray? And he says in Matthew 6, 9, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus and you see the other authors of Scripture continually encouraging us as believers to address God as Father. Um, Paul, in fact, in his letters, over 40 times, he addresses God as Father. And he does it in a variety of places. He does it in doxologies. He does it in thanksgivings. He does it in his prayers. He does it in introductions, in his blessings. It's throughout his epistles. And so the understanding that we have from Scripture is that God, we can come to him as our Heavenly Father. Now, there's an unfortunate issue here. Um, this understanding of God as Father is under attack in our culture. In fact, some people would say, well, it's wrong to, to speak to God as your Father. You can't call Him Father. And, and sadly, some of the reasons include this. Some assert that this is a view, a view in which we exalt God, we make Him a male, right? We, we, we equate Him to being a male, and thus it's an antiquated, it's a chauvinistic view. It's something that we should get rid of. We should come into the 21st century. We should update our view of God so it melds with our culture. 
Um, for some, the thought of a heavenly father leads only to a negative reflection of the father that they had. I mean, maybe your background, maybe when you think about father, uh, you apply the ideas and the experiences, experiences that you had as a, a child under your earthly father, you project those onto your heavenly father. And so you can really have two wrong views of God that can form. I, kinda, I think there's more than this, but I, I took two on the wide spectrum. You have one side of the spectrum where people see God as this angry, dictatorial, wrathful God who's always heavy-handed, that's always meting out punishment on his children. <clears throat> this is often a view that's predicated by people that had a dad like that. Maybe some of you in this room, that's what your dad was. It was never compassion or mercy. There was never kindness. It was anger. It was authoritarian. And so we can take that and we can project that onto who we know of as God. I've had conversations with many unbelievers that that's their view of God. I can't think of God as a heavenly father. That's not a good thing. And sadly, that happens. On the other end of the spectrum, though, sometimes people do what? They take the view of God and they view him as passive. He's all loving. He never, ever, ever is angry. He just gives blessings to his children. Right? And this is the view that you have out of people that come out of the health and wealth, the prosperity movement oftentimes. The view is God is basically a genie in the sky to, to uh, just satisfy whatever their earthly longings are. Maybe you had a dad that was absent, and so what he did to make up for that is he bought gifts. He wasn't there physically with time and affection, so instead he gave you presents. And so that detachment that they received, for those people it's hard because they see a God like that. And they expect him to just meet all of their wants, all their needs. But sadly, both of these views are often proposed by believers and unbelievers alike. They're dangerous. They're unhealthy. And, you know, frankly, they lack scriptural support. So that introduction should shell out for us to see this is what the world we live in thinks of fatherhood. This is often the times what the world we live in thinks of the biblical heavenly father on one extreme or the other extreme. And for some of you here today, that may be the reason why it's difficult for you to even relate to your Heavenly Father. Maybe your experiences in your past has led you to have one of those views. So when you come to prayer and and you read Matthew 6, 9, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, there's there's not a good image in your head. Maybe when you come to that passage and and you open in prayer and you think about the Father, and I I see this a lot in a tendency of us to always pray in Jesus' name. I think sometimes we neglect the fact that what's happened is, is by extension, we have such a a poor view of God, our Heavenly Father, the the first member of the Trinity, we maybe think that, well, the second member is going to be nicer. We see this by extension in other uh, belief systems that pray um, to Mother Mary. Right? Where, well, let's go to even a, a nicer person, because God the Father, He's angry and mean. He won't, he won't receive us, but that's not what the Scripture says. That's not what the Scripture teaches. And so let's, let's look at what the Scriptures reveal about God, that they reveal that He is a good and perfect Heavenly Father, that they reveal that He is actively working for the good of His children. If you are a son or daughter, if you are a child of God, then you can know without a shadow of doubt that God is actively working for your good and for your blessing. So what does it look like for God to act as our Father? I just want to show you uh, His fatherly role from Scripture, just five different aspects of His heavenly 
uh, father's role. Um, there's way more than this. Uh, you could probably spend five, six, eight, twenty. This is going to be a series, right, on all the things that God the Father does and His role in our lives. But I just picked out five. Um, I felt like these were five things that kind of show the progress of God as our Father. And I think these will be helpful to counterbalance some of the, the false views that, that I just started with. So let's look at five aspects of our Heavenly Father's activity toward us. And yes, this is all from the Father. That's where we're jumping off. We're going to spend some time on this, and then we'll be coming back to 1 John in just a minute. Number one, He created us. The foundational element to our understanding of God as our Father must start, must always start with His role as our Creator. If you think in our culture, what is the first thing that gets attacked and assaulted when someone, when any culture, um, defies or stands up against the God of Scripture? It starts with the creation. It starts with the foundational element, which is, who made all this? And we live in a culture where the majority of people would say, no one made all this, right? Chance made all of this. Over a long period of time, it just happened, right? And I taught junior high science. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about evolution, talking about creation and the distinctions. And it's amazing to me how many people would actually say that, uh, that there is no creator, that there is no, uh, no deity, no God that would even uh, start things. It just happened by chance. We know from Scripture that's not true, though. Isaiah 64 Verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Now, that's the God that we know and worship. The God of the Bible is the God that made us, the God that formed all things. You could spend time, we could go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we could chronicle right, all of the things that God made and how He made them. But instead, I want to turn with us, taking your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17, and I want to real quickly just show what the Apostle Paul did. I can remember a few years back when we were studying through the book of Acts and this particular passage, Acts 17, 24 to 28. Of course, this is when Paul is on Mars Hill. He's uh, going to preach this sermon uh, in Athens, uh, and he's preaching to some people that would have not believed the same as him, right? People that uh, he was in a pagan culture that believed in many, many gods, and he stands up on this mountain and he speaks to them. He says, says these things. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't say perhaps the God who made it. He's very clear. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Now notice, God didn't just create the world. He created all things in it, verse 24 says. Verse 25, notice as well that he says, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. I mean, it's clear from the text and others that I could take you to throughout Scripture that we were created by God. This was one aspect of our Heavenly Father's activity toward us 
that he made us. And it's foundational. And it may seem, well, that's, that, yeah, we know that. We're in a church, Aaron, we know that. The sad truth of the matter is, I taught hundreds of students that went to church all their life that didn't believe that. They grew up in a Christian school and didn't believe that. Or that believed it until they went to a public school for the first time and how quickly they stopped believing that when someone gave them a counterfeit. We need to know what the Word says and we need to be clear about what it says. We need to teach that to our children. Genesis 2 would tell us in much more detail that God created our forefather, Adam, from the dust of the earth, that he breathed life into him through his nostrils. Um, I want to just clarify one little thing. Some people take this to mean that God is, they call this the universal fatherhood of all. And I want to make sure we're really clear here. While God is, in a sense, the father of all, in that he created, that everything originated from him, there is a great distinction between the fatherhood of God as the creator and the fatherhood of God, as we'll see in the second point, as the one that adopts us as his children. There is a distinction between a biological father and a father that takes care of his kids. Anybody can be a biological father. It takes nothing to really, and I'll stop there, it takes little for that to happen. But guess what? To be a father that raises your child and instructs them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, that's a big deal, and that's significant. And that same significance of the universal fatherhood of God, that He created all things, it pales in comparison when we think about God as our heavenly Father, the affection. And that's where I want to show us our second point. He didn't just create us. For those of us in Christ, He adopted us. For those of us in Christ, He adopted us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Paul read this, but I doubt you all memorized it in the time that he read it. So, Romans chapter 8. And I want to show you from this text. I had them read, read this particular text because I think that, uh, as I said earlier, verses 14 to 17, this clearly articulates our adoption. This shows that we have been made sons. That we have been made sons. Let's read it again, 14 to 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. We need to understand that we've received a spirit of adoption. As believers, through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. Now, we have some friends that, uh, quite a few friends that have adopted children. And so I've had the experience of um, good friends of ours adopted three young children when they were five and under, I believe. And uh, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to see a, a set of parents to take in a child that's not their own and to treat them as their own, to take them into their home and provide for their needs, uh, to, to give them love and affection and care, to treat them as their very own child. Um, and I've also taught students that have, had, uh, that have been the product of adoption. And it's pretty amazing to even talk to those kids about what it's like to be adopted, what it was like. I, I had one student in particular. She was 12 when she was adopted. So she spent the, the first 12 years of her life, my son's age, um, 
in this one family unit. Her mom was a drug addict. It was a, a really bad situation, place to place, town to town. Never really knew what was going, going on, who she was going to be living with, who she wouldn't be living with. Would she have a house? Homeless for a time. And then she got adopted. She got adopted into a family where they loved her and cared for her and provided for her needs. And uh, it was amazing to see the transition, the progression. We need to stop. Every single one of us in Christ have been adopted. We were illegitimate children. We had another father. Our father was the devil. He was not a good father. He was a father that sought only our destruction. He wanted us to take the path wherever it led. Take that nice, broad, narrow one. Live your life for yourself. He showered things on us, whatever we wanted. He let us go that way. But what was the wages of that? The wages of that sin was death. And somewhere in the annals and the foundations of history, before the foundations of the world were, were even formed, Ephesians tells us, God chose us in Himself. He adopted us into the family of God that we might live as children of God. We were taken, as the Word says, from slavery to sin and instead made children of God. Now, it's interesting to me that this concept of adoption, you guys need to understand, this is not a, this is not a, a Jewish concept. There was not a Jewish concept of adoption. Uh, when, when, when Paul writes this to the church at Rome, and he's writing primarily to, to a Greek um, to a, to a Greek-speaking church, um, the concept that he brings up is a very Greco-Roman concept. They would practice adoption. In fact, the reason and how they would adopt is some wealthy landowner, typically, that didn't have children, would pick a son that he would adopt into his family to be his heir. And when they would proclaim that adoption, it was a, it was a court deal. They'd go in and they'd sign the adoption paper, similar to what we have today, and what would happen? In that moment of the adoption, that son would become as good as his biological child. He would receive all the heir's benefits. He would receive all the responsibilities of being a child. The father would now exercise full authority over him in his life. That's the adoption process that, that Paul writes about in us. And what has God given us? The Scripture tells us He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us a seal that blessed Holy Spirit, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out to our Heavenly Father in prayer and in dependence as our God. So we see He created us. We see He adopted us. Thirdly, He provides for us. He cares for us. He protects us. Um, the Old Testament, Psalm 68, if you would turn there with me. Psalm 68, I read one verse from it a little bit earlier. Psalm 68 has a beautiful depiction of this. This was a psalm of David, and he, he writes it. Um, it's entitled, The God of Sinai and of the Sanctuary. And in verses 4 through 8, I just love this, this little picture because it helps us see an example from the Old Testament of God's provision. Verse 4, Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. 
Oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Salah, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. And Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. I mean, it, obviously, what's David speaking of? He's thinking back to this history that he's been taught and brought up and raised in his whole life, the Exodus. From the time he was a young child, he would have been reminded time in and time again about the Exodus, about his forefathers being brought out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember the provision of God for his people? Do you guys think about that? Do you remember that story well from Exodus? What did he do for them? He released them from slavery. He led them out of Egypt. He provided victory in battle over their enemies time and time again. He provided food in the form of manna from heaven and these birds that just show up. They can all kill and eat. He brought forth water from rocks. He kept their clothing from deteriorating and their shoes from wearing out. I mean, it's pretty amazing, the provision of God in the Old Testament. And that's not the only example. The Old Testament's full of example after example after example of God's provision. Think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Think of Moses and Joshua, Samuel and David and Solomon and many others. The Old Testament shows us time and time again, that God is a Father that provides for His people. But lest you think this is the only way that God provided, it only happened in the Old Testament, we can look in the New Testament and see it as well. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Again, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this past year we had the, the opportunity in our Bible study to preach through this, this section, chapters 5 through 7, and I was just overwhelmed with the, the, the depth uh, the amount of meat um, that's found in these three chapters. And I, by far the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon that will ever be preached. But in, in, in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus focuses his attention on anxiety. He's been talking about a lot of things, and, and the whole Sermon on the Mount really is this progression of looking at, it starts with the Beatitudes, um, it's anchored again and focused around the fact of the kingdom that we're kingdom citizens, that blessed are those who belong to the kingdom, who call their father, God, their father, their heavenly king. And so Jesus has been preaching through this, and he comes to verse 25, and he says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you being worried can add even a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow, thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's clear from this passage in Matthew 26, notice God's provision. Well, why do we worry? Why is there anxiety in our lives? It's because, frankly, we don't trust that God will provide as He's promised. It's right here in Scripture. Next time you worry, 
And we did this in a, a sermon I preached on this passage. At the end of it, I told uh, those that were in our study, I said, listen, next time you have a moment of worry, I want you to earmark, dog ear, whatever you have to do, write on a note card this passage and go back there and ask yourself, do you believe that's true? Is your anxiety a result of the truth? Because there is anxiety. There are times when we're nervous. When my son was in the hospital, I was anxious. I was worried. I don't think that it was sinful to have that anxiety so long as I cast it upon the Lord. So long as I cast it upon the Lord. He's the one that provides for us. And look how he provides. He uses this great analogy, the birds. Uh, we spent the last week up in the uh, Shaver Lake, so up in the hills, beautiful, serene. There's birds everywhere, and it's amazing. God provides. I was in the backyard la- yesterday watching my mom's, what is that called? It's a sock, a finch sock. I didn't know. I, th- I have no clue. But watching these dozens of finches show up at my mom's house, how do they know that there's a sock in the backyard with seed right for them? God provides for the birds of the air. Not only that, he provides for the grass of the field. He uses another example, the grass. The grass which is here today and gone tomorrow. And if you live in California over the last five years, it's been gone, right? (laughs) That grass, it withers, it it dies. It's meant to be thrown into the furnace. Um, In Israel, in particular, grass is is a little bit different. They don't have nice, big, greeny spots of grass. The grass rises up when the rains come. And then the hot air comes and the grass dies. And literally, it can be one day to the next that you have green grass to brown grass. See, if God provides for those things, if God provides for the birds of the air, for the grass of the fields, why do we worry? Don't we know that He's going to provide for us? He's going to provide our food, our water, our clothing. He'll take care of us. I can speak from my own experience. Trish and I have been married almost 20 years. Um, I know she was 10 when we got married. But um, the... The, the amazing thing about God's provision is He has constantly met us exactly where we need. There has been many, many a time, um, especially over the last two years as we moved down to Los Angeles without a job, without an idea of exactly how He was going to provide, and God has just faithfully, time in, time again, provided for our needs. He's met exactly, He hasn't given us necessarily an abundance of, of everything. I'm not driving a boat or a Lexus, but, but uh, he, he has provided what we need. He's been faithful to do that. And I can, I can promise you that his provision, it may not always look like what we want, um, but it's always exactly what we need. Uh, while you're there in Matthew, look ahead in verse 11 of chapter 7. I want to show you one more thing. Because Jesus adds this little piece, and I think it's great. He says, if you then being evil, and he's just laid out a few verses talking about how earthly physical fathers provide for their kids. They don't give their kid a snake, Right? Their kid asks for, for something. They don't give them a rock if they ask for bread. Right? They provide for their needs. We do that. right? We hopefully provide for our children. But what's he saying in 11? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? How much more is our God going to give us what is good? Uh, guys, God has all resources. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns everything. He's a perfect father. He seeks only our good. I love what it says in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Uh, Romans 8.28, if we went, read a little bit further, 
um, in the text that Paul was in. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. There is example after example in the New Testament of God's care and provision to His beloved. Um, there is example after example in church history of God's provision to His beloved. There is example after example in this room of God's provision for His beloved. But I want to just give one slight warning. It may not be what you want or what you think. The greatest provision God gave to my wife and I was a 30-day stay in the hospital with our son. I learned more in those 30 days about God than I had learned in the previous 35 years. I learned more about what it means to trust my Heavenly Father than I had learned in the previous 35 years. There is, just as us as physical children sometimes don't like what our dads give to us, right? We need to understand that our Heavenly Father, sometimes it's not exactly what we think we need or what we want, but He has perfect love, He has perfect wisdom, and He knows exactly what to give us. He's created us, He's adopted us, He provides and protects and cares for us. Fourthly, He disciplines us. Turn with me to Hebrews. He disciplines, with, d- disciplines us. This is the one that, you know, of course, I, no one wants to preach on. But it's a vital one. Hebrews chapter 12. You probably know this passage well. Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 11 reads as follows. I'll start in verse 4, actually. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, Discipline is a result of love. I used to coach basketball, and I would always tell my, my players, if I'm not yelling at you, that probably means I don't think you're any good. And, and I don't know if that was actually a biblical way to approach coaching, but what I meant by that was if I'm giving attention to you and I'm yelling at you or I'm spurring you on and encouraging you, that's because I see something in you. I think that you can improve and grow, and I, I, I really want to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to harness that in the right direction. If I'm not talking to you at all, that's usually not a good sign, right? I mean, you think of it in your own lives as a child. Um, Some of you younger ones in this room, if your dad or mom never disciplined you, would that be real evidence of love and care? If every time you did something wrong or right, they just said, oh, cool, that's awesome. Great job. Keep doing that. Run out in traffic. Sounds fun, right? No, of course not. We know that as the scripture teaches us that discipline, our Heavenly Father disciplined us. Why? Verse 10, for our good. Why? So that we can share in His holiness. Uh, We all know that discipline can be painful. We all know that in the moment, no one likes to receive discipline. 
Um, I can remember moments of discipline growing up um, at the hand of my mom or dad, and uh, they're not all pleasant moments. Um, there were t- times where I thought that they were doing the absolute wrong thing, and I probably expressed it to them, didn't I? Right? But you know what? The purpose of that discipline, hopefully it was to train me, was to build me up. Uh, God, as our Heavenly Father, doesn't discipline us to harm us. He doesn't punish His children. He disciplines His children. There's a difference. For unbelievers, all they have waiting for them is the wrath of God and punishment. For the believer, all we have is discipline. And the purpose of that discipline, time in and time again, the Lord is disciplining us not out of anger, but out of love. Now, again, just as I said earlier, maybe there's been times in your own life, I know in my life where I've disciplined out of anger, where I've disciplined my children not out of love, not with a desire to see them uh, grow in obedience, but for a desire of them to just do what I told them to do right now. And it was selfish. It was motivated by me wanting to go back to watching the show I was watching or doing whatever task I had at hand that was so vital and important. God's not like that. God doesn't have a TV show he's missing. That's a really bad analogy, but God disciplines perfectly. You know, sometimes when I discipline, I don't have perfect wisdom. I have two kids coming, and they're both yelling totally opposite reports at the exact same time. And I have to, in the moment, decide which one's correct and which one's not correct. And I am, I, I've tried the, you know, the sword thing with Solomon, cut them in half, but it doesn't, that's not effective. And oftentimes I make the wrong choice. God's not like that. Perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, perfect love. His discipline is always what we need. His discipline is always designed to make us holy, to make us more righteous, to make us more in the image of our Savior. And and that's why in our lives, that's why sometimes we face trials. That's why tribulations come. That's why difficulties and suffering uh, we may encounter. I love what it says in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Romans 5 Uh, Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings hope. And guess what? That hope doesn't disappoint us. And the reason why it doesn't disappoint us is because we know that God created us. We know that God adopted us. We know that God provides for us. We know that God disciplined us. But the fifth point, and I think this is the key one, if you don't hear anything else the rest of this sermon, this is what I want you to take away. Five, because... God loves us. He loves us. We find the last aspect of God's activity here as our Father, and this is the one that encompasses everything. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you read that passage on love, um, you know, the greatest of these is love. Love is the one that encompasses all things. So look back to our text. Let's go back to 1 John, and I'm going to show you from this text the significance of God's love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Uh, That first first word right there in the Greek, see, can be translated behold, look. Um, It's a a word of attention, and he combines it with a second word that creates this phrase, see how great. Um, Growing up, I think in the King James, it's behold what manner. Right? Uh, the actual literal translation, literally the phrase means, behold of what country? Behold of what country this love the Father has bestowed on us. 
And what, what uh, John is doing here is he's pointing at the divine nature of this love. It is, it is so unparalleled in human experience. It's beyond belief. This, this phrase occurs seven times in the New Testament. Every time it occurs, it means astonishment, wonder, amazement. Behold, what great love. How great is that love of our God? And what kind of love is this? Think about this, that God would set His affection on us, on us who are enemies, estranged rebels of God, those that followed our, our father, the devil, those that were in the kingdom of darkness, that were dead in our sins. Why would He set His affection on us? See, the world says He set His affection on you because you're lovely. You're born basically good. The Scripture tells us, no, that's not it. That's not it. He didn't love you because you're so good and so great. In fact, He loved you in spite of what you were and who you were. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how we used to walk. We walked according to the course of the world. I'm sure there's some in this room that walked according to the course of the world. I'm sure there's some in this room that still walk according to the course of the world. We lived in the lust of our flesh. We indulged the desires of our sinful flesh. And it says in Ephesians 2, verse 3, in fact, we were what? We were children of wrath by our nature. That's who we were. But you can't stop there because Ephesians 2 gets better. In verse 4, what's it say? But God, I love that phrase. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in the midst of it, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that every single moment that we're in heaven, we will be a testimony to the riches of God's love and grace and mercy through Jesus Christ? We will be a living, walking, talking testimony to God's grace. This is divine love, and we did not earn it. We did not deserve it. We are doing nothing to warrant such a gift. There was nothing in us that made us worthy. What were we? Dead in our sins. We were actively rebelling against God. We were children of the devil when He reached down and through the perfect work of His Son saved us and adopted us and made us sons of God. He set his affection on instruments of wrath, and with compassion and mercy and love, he bestowed instead blessing. Blessing, calling us son and daughter. What manner of love is this? As I was even writing this out, studying this text, I found myself just overflowing with joy in my heart to realize how, how rarely I consider what manner of love this is, how faithless I am, how day in and day out I don't even think about it. I mean, this is the kind of love, this love in Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love he's talking about. This is the love in John 1.12 that says, to as many as have believed, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were what? We're born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of, the man, of man, but by God. It's a divine love. It's a love placed on me. What manner of love is this? We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, 
Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What manner of love is this? If you look ahead in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What manner of love is this? Ephesians 1 tells us that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be what? Holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us to adoption through His Son, Jesus Christ. What manner of love? Galatians 4, 5, and 7. God sent His Son. Why? So that He might redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons, that we might cry out, Abba, Father. It's not just that He forgives our sins. It's not just that He sets us free from slavery to sin. He takes slaves and makes us sons. Each of us is a slave made a son. Can you begin to see why John proclaims, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us? Can you see why he asks, what country is this from? He can't imagine. He can't grasp the greatness of this love. It's perfect. It's unbelievable. He loved us so much. And notice, all of those verses I gave, he loved us in action. He loved us in action. Some of us as dads are really good at saying, I love you. Well, some of us aren't good at that at all. But maybe you can say it. But I've often, I believe strongly that saying I love you means nothing if it's not backed up with action. And our Heavenly Father doesn't just say, I love you. Now, go do it on your own. Check on you later. He says, I love you. And that expression is, I'm going to send my son. Jesus says, I love you, and he does that by dying on the cross in our place. The Holy Spirit says, I love you, and he does that by indwelling us and empowering us and strengthening us that we might live lives that honor God. Beloved, behold what manner of love this is. That's all there in that first verse. That's the love, and there's so much more. I love what it says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, and this is kind of to encompass this last statement on love. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has loved us perfectly, and He will continue to love us forever and ever. We've seen from the Scriptures that God is our Father. We've answered the question. He's created us. He's adopted us. He provides for us. He disciplines us. He loves us. How great a love the Father has bestowed. But that brings us to our second question, which is much shorter than the first. What does it mean that we're God's children? Let's look back at our text, 1 John chapter 3. And I just want to show you three quick things. The text is laid out pretty easily to follow. What does it mean that we are God's children? It means three practical aspects of our nature, what we are, what we will be, and what we should be. What we are, what we will be, and what we should be. First one, verses 1 uh, through 2a. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Um, Notice, this is an act He bestowed on us. that verb there for bestowed, it's, it carries a sense it's a perfect tense verb, which means it's something that happened in the past, a while ago, 
but it has continuing results, right? He bestowed this love on us, but it wasn't just back then. It's not just that He adopted us and saved us way back. It's not just what happened when He chose us before the foundations of the world. It's this continuous love that's outpoured in our lives, and it's going to continue on into eternity. We are His children. That's who we are. The Scriptures clearly tell us, and I don't have time to go through all this, it tells us clearly that God's predestined us for adoption of His sons through Jesus Christ, that we've been justified, that we are positionally today as a believer in heaven justified. We're saved. If you're a Christian, if you have repented of sins and trusted upon Christ for salvation, you are positionally saved today. You are His child today, right now. You can't change that. That's who you are in Christ. God is your Father. He's brought us into this new covenant relationship. He's forgiven our sins. He's reconciled us to God through Christ's death, His burial, His resurrection. And we are justified as a gift of God's grace through through His Son. This is who we are today. But look at verse 2. What we should be. What's it say? Behold, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. This is the amazing mystery that hasn't been fully revealed. That while we are children of God now, there is coming a day when we will be conformed fully to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 We will be conformed to His likeness. In 1 Corinthians 15.49, Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will, future tense, also bear the image of the heavenly. I do not understand this fully. I don't think anyone in this room, if, they, if someone tells you they understand this and they can explain this to you, I would run away from them. We don't fully understand what it's going to be like. What's he say? It's not yet appeared, as yet we will be. But we know a few things. What do we know? We know that when we're glorified, this is our glorification, we will see him as he really is in his full glory. We'll be similar to Him in His holiness and in our resurrection bodies. We'll be fully transformed to be like Christ. We'll be free of this body of flesh. There will no longer be battling of temptations or sin. We'll no longer be entangled, but we'll be fully equipped to worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with all of our soul all of our mind, and all of our strength. I don't know about you, but that is a hope that wells up inside of me. Every time I fail, my Lord, I'm disgusted with myself, and I hang on and cling to the fact that there is a day coming when I will no longer sin. There is a day coming when I will see Him as He is, and I will be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. I will reflect Him rightly. He will be completely satisfied with me. Thirdly, look at verse 3, what we should be. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is really the so what in this little section. Our hope is not found in our earthly fathers. They'll fail you. Kids, I'll fail you many, many times. Our hope is not fixed in our wealth or our vocation, our career. It's not fixed in our relationships or friendships. Our hope is fixed fully on Jesus Christ, on Him alone. That's what it means to be a a Christian, to have our hope fixed on Him, to know that He promised to come back, to know that Jesus will return one day and we will see Him as He really is. We will be made like Him. 
we will dwell with Him forever. And because of that hope, how should we live? What's it say? Who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself as He is pure. This is sanctification. This hope should cause us, as Luke 9 tells us, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after Jesus every day. We should be like Christ. We should serve our Heavenly Father with total devotion and love. Um, this, this, thing of, this issue of sanctification, this process of sanctification, is not something we can do on our own. It's not pull up your bootstraps and try harder. It's Philippians 2, 12 through 14, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing what? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's this weird dichotomy, this strange paradox that we strive, we chase after, as Paul says, we press on to lay hold of that which Christ laid hold of us. We strive towards the goal to finish the race, but at the same time knowing that He who began a good work in us is faithful to bring us to a finish. As God's children, we should be marked by tremendous gratitude and joy and thanksgiving for our Heavenly Father. He's been so gracious and kind to us. We should be marked with an overflow of love for one another. We should be marked um, by reverence for our Heavenly Father's name. When we speak of our God, our Father, there should be great reverence. We should be marked by righteous character. Our lives should reflect our Heavenly Father. Just as you want all of you fathers in here want your kids to reflect you well, God, our Heavenly Father, wants us to reflect Him well. He wants us to, to, to honor Him in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. As God's children, we should respond to His great love by loving Him and loving one another. So we've seen in our text today what it means that God is our loving Father, how He's our Creator, He's adopted us, He provides for us, He disciplines us, He loves us. We've also seen that we are His children now, what we will be and what we should be. But I think it would be wrong of me, and I know I'm probably a little bit over, but that's all right. You're a captive audience. It'd be wrong of me if I didn't take one moment to slide back into verse 1 and give one heed of warning. Look back at verse 1 with me. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. We have to realize that not all of humanity understands this relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. And in fact, it's not just that they don't understand it. They rebel against it. They hate it. They hate Him. They don't want anything to do with Him. The love John speaks of is a special and mysterious love that's only experienced by those of us that have believed on Christ for salvation. It's a love given to those of us that are in Christ. The world cannot experience this love, no matter how hard they try. They can start social clubs to try to experience the camaraderie and fellowship, but it's not the same fellowship as a body of believers together. They can do many things to try to replicate and counterfeit this, but this love can only be found in those that know Christ and love the Father as their own. And I say this because there's a reality that some of you here may not love this Father. You may think you know Him, but you don't love Him. You may think you know the Son, but you don't love Him. You may think you know His Word, you don't know it, you don't study it, you don't love it, you don't apply it to your lives. I, I plead with you, everyone in this room, to examine your lives to see if you're truly in the faith. We're encouraged to do that. Examine, test yourselves. And if the test comes through that you love 
Christ and you love the Father and you love the Spirit and you love the body of believers, then rejoice. Praise God. Experience that love and give that love to others. But if you come out wanting, if you find that you don't, if you find that your verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10 says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There's your two tests. Do you practice righteousness? Do you love righteousness? Do you love God's holiness? And do you love one another? The joy is this. Praise be to God. Today is the day of salvation for any that would turn to God. God is never, ever turning away the one that comes to Him in repentance and faith. So if that's you, I pray that uh, this would be the best Father's Day of all. This would be the day that you are adopted into the family of God. And I cannot imagine a more joyful Father's Day memory to have year in and year out and to join the family of God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are so grateful to your word and its faithfulness to us and your faithfulness to us. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can call you Father, that, uh, that you love us, you care for us, you provide for us. Father, we thank you for the family of God that we belong to. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we can, uh, Lord, come alongside of and encourage and comfort and minister to. Lord, we thank you even for the opportunity you give us as, as uh, ambassadors uh, that we might minister your word, evangelize the lost, and that your family may grow. Father, we look forward so much to that day when we will be in your presence when we will see Christ as He is, we will be made like Him. We long for that day and we long for that time when, Lord, we may worship You afresh and anew and rightly. When we may, Lord, no longer be bound by sin or temptation, but, Father, we will perfectly worship You for eternity. And we look forward to that day. And we love You. We thank You so much for Your Word today. And I pray, uh, Lord, that You would even bless this congregation, bless each of these people that are here today, Lord, that they may know you and worship you as God, their Holy Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.